And I'll begin this morning with a confession. I'm about to do something that I'm not very comfortable with. I'm not going to sing or dance, although it would all be pretty uncomfortable if I did either of those things. What we're going to do this morning is look at a topic together. That's not what we normally do. Normally, we let the Bible set the agenda for us each morning. We take a passage and then we look at what that passage says verse by verse. And I'm convinced that that should be the normal pattern when we open God's Word. But on occasion, there's a place for asking our own questions of the Bible and then trying to pull together what the Bible says in answer to our questions. That's what we're going to try and do this morning and then again next week and then after that we'll pick up again in Luke's Gospel. The motivation for doing this is the fact that as Robert has mentioned, on May the 26th, our new home groups are going to be starting. And we want to be as prepared as we can be for those groups. We want to get our heads and our hearts in the right place together. We want to be tuned in to the importance of these groups. So this week we're going to look together at the call to fellowship. Then next week, the challenge of fellowship. Next week, we'll ask, what is it that makes fellowship difficult? Why does fellowship sometimes break down? Why does it sometimes fail to happen in any meaningful way? But this morning, we're going to look at this by asking three questions. First of all, what is the church? Second, what is fellowship? And third, how do we build fellowship? We'll spend most of our time on the first two and very little time on the third of these. We'll come back to the last point next week. And since we're not going to be looking at just one scripture passage this morning, I'll put the main passages up on the screen behind me so you can follow those. So first, what is the church? In the minds of many people, this is the church. It's a building that Christians meet in for a couple of hours on a Sunday. And on this understanding, church is a pretty uninspiring thing. It's mostly empty and quiet. It's inactive for six days out of every seven. Now I would guess that most of us here realize the church is not a building. We realize that in theory, but often in practice, we do think of this as the church. Certainly we say to each other, I'll see you at church. I often do that myself. But if we're ever going to grasp how important fellowship is, we have to be clear on what exactly the church is. So if it's not a building, what is it? Well, here's my attempt at a definition. The church is an active community of people who have God's presence among them because they belong to Jesus. The Old Testament background, or the background to the church, starts in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God lived among his people Israel. His presence was first of all in a tent called the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, God was among his people as they traveled through the desert. And then later, God was present in the bricks and mortar temple in Jerusalem. But when we get to the New Testament, we find that God is living in a new temple. And now it's not a building made of bricks, it's a person. 
John chapter 1 says God came and lived among his people in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was God's new temple. But it wasn't long, of course, before Jesus died, rose again, and returned to heaven. So where is God's temple today? The New Testament tells us that today God lives among his people by his Holy Spirit. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we find the Apostle Paul saying this to the Christians in Corinth. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. So it's true that the Holy Spirit lives in every individual Christian. That's a wonderful truth. But the New Testament has no category for a Christian who isn't actively a part of a local community of Christians. According to the New Testament, as wonderful as it is that the Holy Spirit lives in us as individuals, God is also building us together into a community temple where God's presence lives. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. In the letter to the Ephesians, he's writing to non-Jews primarily who have become Christians. And he wants to assure them that even though they don't have the same religious background as Jews who become Christians, when they come to Jesus, they become part of the same household or temple. So he says to them, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. The Apostle Peter also explains that Christians are a living community temple. Trevor mentioned these verses last Sunday night. As you come to him, the living stone, that's Jesus, rejected by man but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. The church is an active community of people who have God's presence among them because they belong to Jesus. The New Testament uses several other pictures to get across the idea that the church is a living thing. There's the picture of branches on a vine, or the picture of God's people as a household, or the family of God. But apart from the church as a living temple, the most developed New Testament picture of the church is a body. We had that reading earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Speaking about the church, Paul said, The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though its parts are many, they form one body. Every individual who belongs to Jesus is part of a living body. And as Paul goes on to say in that passage, we need each other. 
Just as a human body needs all its parts. Just as a human body is disabled if any of its parts are missing or not working properly, so it is with the church body. In Ephesians, Paul talks about the need for the parts of the body to work together. He's speaking about the church when he says, from him, again that's Christ, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So when we think of the church, let's make sure we have the right picture in our minds. Not this, although it's a very nice building. But this. Now obviously, Paul didn't have kicking a football in mind when he calls the church a body. But he does want us to think of a body where every muscle and ligament is working together. And as this picture shows us, kicking a football doesn't just involve your foot. Muscles from all over the body have to work together, as well as the brain and the eyes and plenty of other things. Try kicking a ball with your eyes closed. Try kicking a ball with one leg tied behind your back. The point is, when the church body is healthy, it will be active, not static. And being active requires, as Paul says, that each part does its work and that all the parts work together. So now that we're thinking of the church as a living temple that's also an active body, we're ready to ask our next question. What is fellowship? Many of us will have heard preachers talking about the Greek word koinonia. It's a word that occurs in some form or another about 35 times in the New Testament. And often it's translated in our English Bibles as fellowship. Not always, but often it is. And just like the word church, fellowship is one of those words we use a lot as Christians. But we might not always be quite clear on what it means. So we can start with what fellowship is not. It's not chatting with another Christian over a mug of coffee. And yet we often use the word fellowship to talk about pretty much anything that a group of Christians do together. So let's look at how the New Testament uses the word fellowship, or actually the word koinonia. And the first thing we find in the New Testament is that koinonia is not a uniquely Christian word. It's actually a business word. So in Luke chapter 5, in our English Bibles, we find this. And the context here is that Simon Peter has just taken a huge catch of fish. And Luke tells us, he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. The Greek word behind partners is koinonia. And this little background comment from Luke gives us insight into the basic meaning of the word fellowship. Simon Peter had a fishing business, and James and John were in fellowship with him. They were business partners. Maybe they shared the startup cost of buying the boat and the nets. 
and they certainly shared the day-to-day effort and sweat and frustration and joy of running a fishing business. So before we get to what's special or distinctive about Christian fellowship, we can say that the basic meaning of fellowship is to enter into partnership in some project or task. The best definition I've come across is this. What is fellowship? Self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. In the case of Simon Peter and James and John, before they met Jesus, their shared vision was a thriving fishing business. And in order to achieve that vision, they worked together in self-sacrificing conformity. Conformity doesn't mean they all did the same thing. Each of them would have had different strengths. They probably focused on different aspects of the business. But they worked as partners, shoulder to shoulder for the same goal. Some of you will either have read the book or seen the films of The Lord of the Rings. If you have, you might remember that the first part of that trilogy is called The Fellowship of the Ring. And The Fellowship turns out to be a group of very different people. A handful of hobbits, a couple of humans, an elf, and a dwarf. And as you and I all know, elves and dwarves do not get along together. But those two did. They worked together with a shared vision. They had a common cause. They were trying to help get the ring to Mount Doom so that that it could be destroyed and the power behind the ring could be destroyed. Tolkien understood what fellowship is. And the story of that little group is a helpful illustration of fellowship. Self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. So now we can go on to ask, what is Christian fellowship? What is our shared vision? If the church is a living temple that's also an active body, what are we working together for? What business are we about as Christians? And the way to come at this is to ask, what is God's big vision for his creation? If we know what God's vision is, then we know what ours must be. In the Old Testament, God reveals his vision for his creation. Through the prophet Isaiah, God talks about a future day when the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Through the prophet Habakkuk, God adds something extra. He points to a day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's God's big vision for his creation, that one day it will all be filled with his glory. And that same vision comes back at the very end of the Bible. The final chapters of Revelation describe the new heaven and earth. And they describe it as a place where there's no need of sun or moon because the glory of God gives it light. God's glory is everywhere in the new heaven and earth. The New Testament tells us something else about this big vision. It will be brought about by Jesus Christ. 
He has the power and authority to bring men and women into God's kingdom. He has the power to forgive sins, to bring people from spiritual death to spiritual life. He has the power to reconcile men and women to God. So if God's big vision is a new heaven and earth filled with his glory, and if Jesus is the one who will bring that about, what is the church to be doing? What business are we to be about? Very simply, our part is to point men and women to the king. We can't change men and women's hearts. We can't give them new spiritual life. We can't bring about the new heaven and earth that's going to be filled with God's glory. We can't do any of those things. But we can point to the one who does change hearts and give life. The one who will one day hand over the kingdom to God the Father. So then we can ask, how do we point to the king? We share and show the good news about Jesus. We often call that good news the gospel. The good news that Jesus changes lives. We are to fellowship together in sharing and showing that good news. And we understand the bit about showing easily enough. Sharing, sorry, easily enough. That's just explaining the gospel in words. Sharing the good news. But we're also called to show the reality of Jesus' life-changing power. We can only do that properly through our Christian relationships. By living together in such a way that it's evident Jesus has changed us. The give and take of relationships brings out our true colors, good or bad. And as Christians, our relationships are to show the world that God is present and active in our midst. Because our life together will either give weight and credibility to our words or it will make our words empty and hollow. It's God's plan that the world would look at the church and come into contact with the church and glorify God as a result of what they see and hear. This is how Peter puts it. He says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now that's a very famous verse, and we might be tempted to think of living a good life in a very individualistic way. So it's me being a good witness at my office, or me being a good witness among my family. And that's very important. But in the context of the wider passage in Peter's letter, our individual witness isn't quite what Peter has in mind. Earlier we quoted some verses from earlier in the same passage. It's where Peter refers to Christians as a community. And he says, you, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So when Peter says, just a verse later, live good lives among the pagans, he has in mind specifically our community life. That's what will cause people to glorify God. 
And that makes perfect sense. It's only in Christian relationships that the world is really going to see the life-changing power of the gospel. Most of us can get along with ourselves okay. The real test is, how do we get along with the rest of the body, the church? Our shared vision is a new heaven and earth filled with God's glory. A place where God reigns unchallenged. And we are to fellowship together in being a living picture here and now of that future reality. Of course, it's always, always going to be an imperfect picture in this life. But the church of Jesus Christ is to be about the business of showing the difference Jesus makes in people's lives. So what does it look like when a church is fellowshipping? What does it look like when the body of Christ is working together for its goal? We can turn to the New Testament and ask, what are the signs of Christian fellowship? How do we recognize it when we see it? I'll briefly mention five signs that we find in the New Testament. There might be more, but there are at least these five. First of all, evidence of unity. The New Testament is clear that when we put our trust in Jesus, we join his family. We are united together in Christ. It's an accomplished fact. The trouble is, of course, our community life doesn't always display that reality. It doesn't always show evidence that we're united in Christ. So the same Apostle Paul who can tell the Christians in Corinth that they are one body in Christ can also write in the same letter, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. So he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Paul is not calling them to become clones. He doesn't expect everyone to have the same personality or approach. But he won't allow them to get comfortable with quarrels and divisions. He wants to see evidence of their unity. And that takes work. It takes self-sacrifice. It means putting the cause of the gospel before, before winning our own little victories. When fellowship is thriving, our unity in Christ will be evident. And as fellowship deepens, our unity will become increasingly evident. And our unity will increasingly point men and women to the king. A second sign is love expressed in action. The New Testament certainly talks about our love for the world around us, but it talks even more about our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the reason for that emphasis is that our love for each other is a powerful sign that God is among us. So Jesus said to his first disciples, by this all men will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. 
One of the reasons the early church made such an impression on a hostile world was the power of their love for one another. It even impressed their opponents who were persecuting them. It's easy to claim to be a Christian. It's easy to claim we're a fellowship where God is at work. It means a lot more when we show it by the quality of our love for one another. The Apostle Paul picks up Jesus' point. In Romans, he says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Then he shows that our love must be more than just words. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And over in Galatians, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. True Christian fellowship involves love expressed in action and ministry by all believers. A football match has been described as 22 men badly in need of rest being watched by 22,000 people badly in need of exercise. Sometimes the church could be described in just the same way. We can come to treat the building we meet in a little bit like a football stadium. We show up, we pay our money, and hopefully we enjoy the show. I'm not saying we do think of the church that way. I'm saying it's easy to fall into thinking of it that way. But true church involves fellowship. And fellowship involves not just spectating for an hour or two on Sunday. Fellowship means getting involved in ministry ourselves. And I know maybe the word ministry makes us think of preaching automatically. But preaching is only one of many ministries mentioned in the New Testament. And the New Testament is clear. Every Christian has been equipped by God for some ministry. We don't all have the same ministry gift, but we all have some ministry gift. We read earlier from that body passage in 1 Corinthians 12. This is another body passage from Romans. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and those members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. There are other lists of gifts or ministries in the New Testament. But all we want to notice here is that true fellowship involves ministry by all believers. Sometimes when we talk about church, we seem to be asking, what will I get out of it? 
But the biblical approach is to ask, what can I put into it? And the great thing is, when we join in fellowship this way, we do get something out of it. We get much more out of it than we would by just spectating. Fellowship also involves accountability to one another. A local church that's nothing more than a bunch of self-sufficient individuals is never going to experience true fellowship. If we're more focused on keeping our struggles and our sin private, if we're more concerned about appearing to be holy than actually being holy, we're never going to experience true fellowship. A few weeks ago, Mike helped us think about the command in the letter of James to confess our sins to each other. The reason for doing that is not so another human being can give us absolution for our sin. The reason for doing it is so that our brothers and sisters can hold us accountable for our sin and give us encouragement in our struggle to overcome sin. A few weeks ago in Luke's gospel, we heard Jesus give this command, if your brother sins, rebuke him. We said at the time, the purpose of rebuke is not to put someone in their place. It's to lead them to repentance and growth in Christ-likeness. Hebrews chapter 3 says this, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And remember, this is written to Christians. Christians have to work to avoid and to overcome their own sinful, unbelieving hearts. And one of the provisions God has made for us in this is the daily encouragement of Christian brothers and sisters. And encouragement here does not mean they're always patting us on the back. It means they help us follow through with the hard work of battling sin in our lives, overcoming unbelief in our lives. Accountability to one another is a vital part of true fellowship. But it's so easy to keep our brothers and sisters at arm's length. It's so easy to opt out of this aspect of fellowship. But as individuals, we desperately need it. And it's a powerful way of pointing men and women to the king. The king who forgives us and perseveres with us in spite of our sin. We do the world around us no good if we act like we're sinless as Christians. The world needs to see that God loves and saves sinners, flawed people just like them. That doesn't mean we're to glory in our sin, but being honest about our sin glorifies the Savior who died for us. And a final sign of true Christian fellowship, spiritual growth of all believers. 
It's very easy as a church body to focus on getting men and women into the kingdom. Getting them to make a commitment to Christ. And then once they've made a commitment, to pretty much ignore them and move on to trying to get others into the kingdom. But it doesn't take a lot of reflection to see that's a recipe for disaster. A church where everyone is a spiritual toddler and stays that way is not going to show the world much of Jesus' life-changing power. A church full of spiritual toddlers will behave like a room full of real toddlers. Imagine that. Squabbling, fighting, yelling at each other, everything else that would go on. Earlier we quoted from Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. He mentioned their divisions. Specifically, in that case, it was divisions over which leader they liked best. And he took their divisions as a sign of spiritual immaturity. So he went on to say, grow up. You ought to be moving on from your quarrels about who's the best preacher. Paul says, I ought to be able to address bigger issues with you. But you're stuck on this spiritual toddler issue. True healthy fellowship involves the continued growth of all believers. It involves working for the increasing maturity of all believers. Of course, we're not all going to be at the same place spiritually. We're not all going to grow at the same pace. But a healthy fellowship is always looking to help and encourage everyone to grow. To grow in knowledge of God in obedience to God and in ministry to others. Paul wrote to the Christians in Thessalonica, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. That means made holy. And he went on to explain that he was not talking about a one-time event. He was talking about a process, growth in holiness. So later he wrote again to the Thessalonians giving thanks for the growth that he'd heard about. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Paul knew the importance of the spiritual growth of all believers, and when he saw it, he gave thanks. If we've got nothing else out of this this morning, hopefully we can see that the New Testament definition of fellowship is a long way from just chatting over coffee. It's a lot more involved and costly. But it's also a lot more rewarding and invigorating and meaningful. And that's really all I want us to see this morning. Because if we can understand anything at all about the nature of true fellowship, then we will see that simply showing up and sitting here for an hour on Sunday is not going to take us very far into true fellowship. If we understand anything at all about the importance of true fellowship, we'll be asking the question how do we deepen fellowship? 
And I just have some very brief comments on this. We'll come back to it next week. As elders, we're convinced that one necessary element in deepening fellowship is home groups. We are not a large church, but we're large enough that fellowship is not going to happen if we only meet as one group of 100 plus people. That's going to keep things pretty superficial. And we've always had home groups in this church, but in recent years, the numbers involved in them have fallen off significantly. And so we're relaunching them. Maybe you've thought in the past of home groups as a sort of mini Sunday service. But we'd like you to think of them as a context to deepen fellowship. So they're not going to be like a mini service. They're intended to be a context where we as a body can grow in the five signs of fellowship that we've just looked at. So think of home groups not so much in terms of what can I get out of it, but what can I put in so that others are helped to grow, so that fellowship deepens. When we think of our home group in that way, we will get much more out of it ourselves. We'll grow ourselves as we work to help others grow. So Robert has put up at the back a list of names for seven different home groups. These are going to start on May the 26th, and they'll run every second and fourth weeks in the month. Some of you will rush to the back at the end, and you may be disappointed to see who isn't, or maybe who is, in your group. That's okay. It's okay to feel that way. It's a chance for you to grow and to learn to love people you might normally avoid. Some of you might go to the back and be disappointed to see that there's no group meeting at the church. Again, that's okay. See it as a chance to stretch yourself and to grow in fellowship. Instead of being upset when you look at your list, remember what our fellowship is for. It's to point people to the king. The king who has put very different kinds of people together in this local fellowship. So ask yourself what you can do to help your new group be a success. Ask God to give you a desire to minister to and care for the people in your group. I need to tell you that those of you who didn't sign up for a group will probably find that your name is in the group unless you've only been here a few weeks, maybe. We've included everyone who regularly attends, not just church members. But if you find your name on the list, please don't be alarmed. It just means that that particular group will be praying for you, whether you come or not. And if you decide to attend the group, you'll be very welcome. No one's going to pressurize you into going. But your group leader will contact you just to let you know that you're welcome. And if you don't find your name on a list, but you'd like it to be, then please speak to me or, as Robert said, one of the other elders who have fled the scene this morning. Just mention to us and we'll make sure that you're included. We haven't left anyone out intentionally. 
So we're going to come back to the topic of fellowship next week and think about challenges to fellowship. What are some of the obstacles or roadblocks that hinder true fellowship? But I want to finish this morning with a statement that summarizes what we hope for our home groups. A good local church and a good small group is like the best of families. Good families take responsibility for each other. Good families are honest with each other. Good families take care of each other. Good families deal with their problems. Good families love each other. No one is lonely. Good families love and respect the head of the household. In our case, the one we call Father and Lord. Let's pray. Father, however much of this might have been new to us or however much of we might have known already, we pray that you will help each of us to enlarge our view of what church is. Give us a bigger view of what fellowship is, a deeper understanding of fellowship. And will you give us, as a body, an appetite to deepen our fellowship? You have brought us together in this local body. So will you bless us with a common vision? Give us a common desire to point men and women to the king. And will you show us, convince us, that our fellowship can be a powerful witness to the love and the grace of our king. And if some of us are finding this whole idea daunting or unsettling, will you help us to consider not just what makes us comfortable, but help us to look for ways that we can be a blessing to others? And will you work in us and among us by your Holy Spirit? Amen. Let's close by singing, Let Love Be Found Among Us.